some amazing things when, he, when we get to this point. He's just fed 4,000 people and then he's healed a blind man. And um, he goes to his disciples and he asks them a question. And the question's... The question is this, who do people say that I am? And so the disciples come up with an answer. And the answer is this, and, and they said to him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, I, like, I think that should be translated blurted out, and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. And he was stating this matter plainly to them, but Peter took him aside and began to tell him off. Turning around and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter right in front of them and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but your and man's interests. And he summoned the multitude, so he gathers all the people around now, and he says with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Okay, so we're talking this morning about a king. And this king is called Jesus. But nobody knows at the time that Jesus is saying this, that he's going to be the king, that he's going to have a kingdom. And one of the things about kings and queens is they have lots of amazing treasures. And Cheryl and I, we went to visit the queen's house just a couple of weeks ago. We went to visit and we looked at all these amazing treasures. Now, if anybody can guess, this is children, not Roger, if anybody can guess what you might find in the Queen's house, if Cheryl saw it there, then she's going to give you a chocolate. So, okay, so what might we find in the Queen's house? Uh, Kwame. Gold and money. Gold and money. <laughs> no, no, you have to go. Go on, exercise. <laughs> I've just got them sat there. <laughs> right, next one. A crown. A crown? Did we see a crown? Uh, we did. We did see a crown. Not the crown, but we did see a crown. Yeah, we did see a crown, but not the crown, because the crown's in yeah, the Tower of London. Tower. But you can, you can have one for this crown. Theo. No, she doesn't have a jewellery there. No. They, they have that under separate guard. Oh. Oh. Jamal? Um. Gun blank. <laughs> what am I? He's thinking. 
What do you have in rich houses? Um, a field. A what? A field, like massive oh, massive gardens. Yeah, massive gardens. Yeah. Go on, what were you? Pardon? A throne. A throne. We did see an yeah, old throne. Yeah, there is a throne there. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did see an old throne. There's a, there's a big throne yeah. where, she, where, where the Queen greets official visitors. Yeah. And it was brought there for the visit of Napoleon II. Yeah. Go on then. Sorry? What's that? Some surprises. Well, I definitely got some surprises. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll go for that. Some surprises. <laughs> Any more guesses? Yeah. Um, uh, did you see um, uh, some soldiers? Oh, we did. We did. We did actually saw them marching. We could, we could show them what the soldiers looked like. Yeah. There they are. They have these big fluffy things on their head. Go on then. Did you see a... Did you see any statues? We did see a lot of statues. Right. We did? We did. Okay, any more? Go on then, Kwame. Pictures. Pictures. Lots of pictures. Shall I show you what the Queen's house looks like and then... You can tell me what you see on it. So this is the Queen's house. It's big, isn't it? Look how big that house is. This is Windsor. That is great. And Windsor is her home. So she has Buckingham Palace, which is in the centre of London, and that's where she sees all her official guests. But the place that she calls home, and she goes there for weekends, is Windsor. Right, what else, Windsor. What else do we see there? This is the Great Hall, okay? That's absolutely huge. This is the place that you might remember that burnt down and they've completely restored it and it's got lots of paintings and lots of shields right now. What, what do you see? What do you see? We did, we went over a bridge. Yes, good point, yeah. Show a little girl on the end. Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's let's have a let's have a look a bit more while Cheryl dishes the rest of the, the chocolates out. Let's have a look a bit more about what the Queen's house looks like. Now, this this here, this this is a clock. It and it's just made we got and it has a really old Bible inside it. And all those paintings, the Queen's house is just absolutely full of paintings. And there's another room with lots of paintings in there. Now, you might think, oh, well, what, what, what's the point of that? That wall alone is probably one of the most valuable walls of paintings in the world. And they're all the queens. That wall is either painted entirely by Rubens or Van Dyck. The whole room is full of Rubens and Van Dyck paintings. She's got these incredible things. What else do we see? Now, that's the weapons room. That's the scary room that you have to go through to get in. 
And apparently you can take those down from the wall if you're a soldier, but not if you're anybody else. Is there any more pictures? Okay, so that's what the Queen's house is looking at. The Queen's house is absolutely full of treasure. Now, okay, so I'm coming back to the passage now. So adults can now pay attention. I just have to warn you, there's no chocolate for right or wrong answers for adults. But there is, after the service, lots of chocolate. I put the pictures up of the cakes last, last night on Facebook. And there's a friend of mine who grew up with me in Kendall. And she's got this thing that, that we're building this church entirely on sugar. <laughs> and, and so I've got a response I'm going to put up when I get home, which is, yes, building the kingdom one sugar cube at a time. Yeah? Okay, so Jesus, tells, Jesus has this uh, moment when he asks the disciples, who do you think I am? And uh, Peter has this, this reaction to it where he says, Jesus, no, 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 you, you're not going to die. You, that, you're not going to go through that. Why don't you just like set your kingdom up? Why don't you, you use all that power you've got? And why don't you avoid going to the cross? And Jesus puts this really interesting answer in. He says, you are only interested in man's interests and your interests and not the kingdom's. You see, we can do that same, we can make exactly that same mistake as Peter did. Because we can stop at that point of the cross and say, no, 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 that, that's, just, that's just too much. That, that a saviour should die, that, that God should die on a cross for us. And, and the thing about Peter is he couldn't see past the cross because Jesus had clearly said, I'm going to come back to life. But Peter's going, no, 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 I, won't, I don't want you to die. And a lot of us as, as believers, we get stuck on the cross. We, we think about Jesus' death, particularly at Easter, we think about Jesus dying and, and everybody gets really mournful on Good Friday. It's like we forgot that Sunday's coming. You see, the truth is that Jesus rose again and he's alive and he won a victory. And in winning a victory, he won all the treasures of the earth. He became the king who would rule forever. And you see, we live in victory. You know, sometimes... And, and, I kind of appreciate it for you guys this morning because you didn't look too solemn and too miserable taking communion. But I was trained as, as, as a young kid when I first went to church to be really miserable going up to communion and remembering and mourn Jesus' death. But Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. Communion is a celebration of what he has done, not what he's going through. And, and so often our Christianity, our belief, gets stuck at the cross. And because of that, we're always looking at our sin. We're always looking at the wrong things we did that Jesus died for. Instead of looking at the new life he gave us because he rose again. And Easter's about him rising again. Rising in victory. And when we put our faith in him, we don't just die to our old self. We live again a new life. Easter's about victory, but we live in that new life all the time. And Jesus says, well, who do you say I who, who do men say I am? And I find it really interesting who the list of lists, John the Baptist, Elijah, and any other prophet they can think of. And we know from Jesus that he said John the Baptist, the greatest prophet. 
Elijah, most people thought, was the prophet. I think it's really interesting that when Jesus asked, who do men say I am? Everybody came up with an answer that would point them back to the law. It would point them back to rules and requirements and things they needed to do because that was the job of an Old Testament prophet. He was to call people back to obedience. But Peter gets it. He says, no, 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 things have changed now. Jesus is on the scene. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one that's come to change things. No idea how he's going to change them because this this isn't my plan that he's going to die on a cross, but he's the Messiah. I can see it. And... um, Peter's response, really, is he's thinking, well, Jesus is going to set this kingdom up by force. He's going to set this rule up by conquering. He's going to take on the Romans. He's going to set up some sort of throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, well, no, I'm going to die for you. But I'm going to come back to life so that you can have life. And the interesting thing I think about Jesus is... Unlike prophets of Old Testament times who used to tell people everything that was wrong about them and and how they were going to be judged, Jesus never takes that approach. Jesus says, I'm going to die because I love you. And that's the sole reason I'm going to die. But I'm not going to force you to love me. That's going to be a choice you can make. You can choose to love me in return or not. I'm going to take that risk. I don't know where you ever thought about it, but Jesus took a risk when he went to the cross. Because it might be that nobody ever made that choice after he died for them. Now, happily, we all made that choice, didn't we? And what do we say? We're grateful. Let's give him like, like, come on, Jesus. Praise him. And we make this choice. Now, What I find interesting about this passage that I just read is that there's some miserable people who go solemnly to communion and are grumpy all the time who read this wrong. And you're going like, oh, where's Mark going with this one now? Okay. Well, you see, they read the first sentence and and Jesus says, after after Peter said, after he's rebuked Peter, he gets all the crowd together. Remember, he's fed 4,000 of them. It's a big crowd at this point. He's just healed somebody from blindness right in front of them. And um, he gets them together. And he says this, uh, anyone who wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What do you, what do you, think, what do you think it looks like, children, for somebody to take up their cross? What do you think Jesus is talking about? Any ideas? Do you think it looks like this? Do you think it looks like this man here? No. This man apparently attempted to do the marathon with that as as an evangelistic tool. But that's not what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross. Now, it's really interesting what some people then decide it means because they decide it means making yourself miserable. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. And um, there's basically two interpretations you can take of this. 
The first interpretation is this, and, and I'll call this self-denial. Self-denial is basically an idea that you, your job is to not do anything you like doing. But you're going to be miserable for life uh, because you're not worth anything. You're just, you're just hopeless, you sin all the time, you, you, you're a failure, and God hasn't got anything good for you because you're such a miserable person, you're such a loser. And the only way you can do anything about that is to keep on denying all the things that you are and keep on denying yourself everything that you enjoy and keep on denying yourself any element of fun and doing really crazy religious things about locking yourself in, in, in rooms and praying for hours and, and crying out to God for hours that he'll, he'll solve all your, 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 your failings and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's how most people read that verse. And... The trouble is that they don't read that verse in the context of carrying on reading. They read that verse. And, and that verse is actually, this is actually repeated in three of the Gospels. In one of them, Luke, it says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. Now, people go, well, therefore, there you are. That's, that's, that's God telling us that you need to, every day, just remember what a failure you are. Every day, remember how sinful you are. Every day, remember how, how rubbish you are and how great he is. You see, that's not what God and Jesus is talking about at all. But because we like to feel we need to do something to earn God's approval, we feel like we need to read it that way. Now, when I was in... Um, uh, Bible school, one of the things they teach you is this thing called hermeneutics. So Dawn, I told Dawn I was going to use a long word on Sunday. She's looking horrified now. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of how you study the Bible. It's the rules. And basically it says, firstly, you read what the words say. Secondly, you read them in the context of the passage around them. Then the context of the book as a whole. And, but most of all, you read it in the teaching of the Bible as a whole. And when you apply those, you get a completely different view of what this verse means. By the way, that word um, that I mentioned when it says in Luke, daily deny yourself, um, that's not in the manuscripts. Basically, when they did the first version of the Bible back in the 1600s, they only had a few manuscripts available. And it, and it, it was in those. But when they found lots of earlier manuscripts, because we, now we've got thousands of manuscripts from earlier dates and that, they found out that it wasn't in all the earlier ones. So there's this thing called the majority text. And basically what that tells you is that word daily isn't in the majority text. And, and what you'll find in a lot of Bibles is a little note that it's implied. So we put it in anyway. No, it's not implied. It's not there. Because that's not what Jesus is talking about. Let me tell you what he's talking about. You see, the, the, the problem about reading it like you've got to abstain from everything is that, let me just put this in, in a sensible context. If you abstain from food, Facebook, fun, anything enjoyable, then it doesn't make you righteous or holy. But it does make you religious. And other religious people will love you for it, but it doesn't make you any holier because you already are holy and righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus has done. 
The other problem about all that is it leaves you anxious and insecure about how God feels about you. Because you're never sure if you've denied yourself enough. You know, like when I um, pinched a couple of the chocolate crispy cakes with the eggs last night, I wasn't sure whether that meant that God didn't love me. But that's... that's <laughs> the thing is that I am sure God loves me. And it's not on the basis of that. It's on the basis of what Christ done. Now, let me tell you what this passage means. It's all about salvation. Because if you read the rest of the passage, it's talking about whether you lose your soul or you gain it. And he said, Jesus says, what does, what, what's it worth for man to keep his own agenda, his own life, and rely on himself compared to salvation? And Jesus says, that's a bad deal. You don't want to do that. You see, when you read further down, he's saying, whoever wishes to save his life, the word there is actually soul, whoever wishes to save his soul loses it. In other words, if you want to keep on uh, living your life your way, doing what you want to, living for your own purposes, your own goals, and walk away from Jesus, you can. But ultimately, it'll cost you. But if you, if you give up your own agenda and take on a kingdom agenda, you get life, and life in all its fullness, and that is so much better than you would have achieved yourself. And that, that's what Jesus is saying. He said, he's, he's, he's saying, when he says, take up your cross, he's saying, well, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again, and I want you to count yourself the same. I want you to look each day. That's why I don't think it matters whether it's daily or not, but we keep seeing ourselves not as miserable people who, who can't manage and who are failures, but we keep seeing ourselves as people saved by Christ through his death and resurrection, and we've now been given his life because we trusted in him instead of ourselves. And that's good news, isn't it? That's good news. You see, the thing about the gospel is the gospel is good news. And the point of good news is it doesn't contain bad news. Because if it did, it wouldn't be very good news, would it? But the gospel is amazing news. And the amazing news is that Christ died for us, whatever we were like, whoever we were, whatever faults we had, whatever mistakes we'd made, whatever foul-ups of a life we were living, and he died for us to give us new life. And Jesus is saying, whatever you want to hang on to, it isn't worth it because you're making a bad bargain. Because you could have all the treasures in Windsor Castle. You could live like a queen and a king and you could have everything and you'd still have made a bad bargain. You could be the richest person in the world. You could be Warren Buffett, Bill Gates. But if you haven't got me, you've made a bad bargain. Because I'm so, we, it's so much more than that that I've got for you. And we men to live in the light of that, that, that Christ died to make us like him. He made us part of the family. We don't just like slum around down at the bottom, be miserable. We, we become part of the family with access to all the treasures of the family. That's, that's the gospel. And it doesn't depend on you. It depends on what he did 2,000 years ago. Are you with me? Because you should be celebrating if you're with me. Let's give him some, like, yumph. Come on. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Because it's incredible what God will do to get you, to reach you, to, to, to show his love for you. 
You see, people go, well, you know, it's talking about you, you dying to yourself and crucifying your flesh. Let me tell you something about crucifying your flesh and why this can't mean that. Hermeneutics, read everything in the context of the whole revelation of the Bible. Galatians 2.20. You can't crucify your flesh. Why can't you crucify your flesh? Because I have been crucified with Christ. You're dead. Your old person is dead. You're already crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 2.20. What does that say? Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, as though living in, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to rules, regulations, and trying to earn it yourself? Why do you do that? Because you're crazy. Because you don't understand what Jesus did for you. You're trying to live the gospel through the prophets and through all the Old Testament rules when actually Jesus fulfilled all that and he brought new life and a new covenant. You see, our faith is about every day making one decision. And the decision is this, do I believe that Jesus died for me and he rose again and he gave me new life? And if I believe that, I'm going to live my new life. I'm going to take up that cross and I'm going to live my new life. I'm going to live from that place. I'm going to live from my spirit and not my flesh. I'm going to live for the kingdom and not my own glory. I'm going to live for Christ because I love him and not because I love myself. That's what it's saying. You see, the thing about the gospel is it's really simple. And it needs people who are simple to understand it. So just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm simple. Because I can understand this. See, you don't want to complicate things. So Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. I just want to um, read you something that Jesus says from the message translation, and I'm going to tell you a story. Who wants a story? Who fancies a story? It's about a very special boy. Yeah? What? You want it to be about a very special girl, did you? <laughs> I see. Well done, Toby. Okay, let, let me read you this from the message translation, and it helps. I came down from heaven not to follow my own, this is Jesus talking, my own whim, but to accomplish the will of the one who sent me. This, in a nutshell, is that will. That everything handed over to me by the Father be completed. Not a single detail missed. Jesus said, it is finished. Everything was completed. Not a single detail was missed. Not one thing that you need for your salvation was left out. Not one thing you need for life and godliness was left out. It's complete. And at the wrap-up of time, I have everything and everyone put together upright and whole. That's us. We get put together, all together, upright, whole, complete. 
This is what my father wants, that anyone who sees and trusts who he is and what he does and then aligns with him will enter real life, eternal life. My part is to put them on their feet alive and whole at the completion of the time. There's a story of, um, some of you might have heard this story. I, we, I think Shavala and I first heard it years ago. And it's a story of a very rich man. And this rich man, he lived before the First World War. A long time ago. And this man, his wife died really young. After giving him a son. And so he loved this son. And as the son grew up, they used to do lots of things together. They used to share lots of things. Now, the rich father, he loved paintings. Do you remember all those paintings like the queen had? He loved those. And, he had a, and, and so he and his son would go to auctions and, and art collections and they, they bought all the best paintings that they could afford. And they built a huge art collection between the two of them. And they filled their house with paintings like the queen did. Now, when the war started... Something happened. The son got a letter to tell him he had to join the soldiers and go to war. And he went to war. And each week, his father would get a letter back from him telling, telling him what had been happening and what the son had been doing and, and, and all, the, all the things that, that had been happening out on the battlefield. Then one day, the letters didn't come anymore. And the father thought the worst. And he heard that his son had been killed in the war. Now, what happened then was that one of the son's friends, who he knew and, and had written about in his letters, came and knocked on the door of the father's house. And he said, and he, and he, he told the father about all the great things that his son had done. And how that what happened was that his son had been killed saving this man's life. That he'd given his life for this man. And the man said, you know, I know you love painting and, and I, I'm not really very good at painting. But when we were at the battlefield, I painted this picture of your son and I wanted you to have it. So he gave him this picture, this painting that he'd done of his son. It wasn't a very good painting. But his father treasured it. Can you see it? There's the picture of the son. Yeah? In his, in his battle outfit, in the battlefield. And his father kept it. Now, lots of years later, the father died. And he left all the house and all the treasures and all the paintings that he and his son had collected. And... He gave instructions that they were to be sent to auction. They were to be sold. And so, a few weeks later, everybody gathered in this auction room. Can we show them what an auction room looks like? There they are. There, all the paintings around the wall. And there they are waiting in the auction room. And they're all going to bid on these paintings. So the man who's conducting the auction, he gets up to the front and he... Um, 
calms everybody down and says, right, we're going to start with the first lot. And the first painting to come up for sale is a uh, watercolour that was done on the battlefield of this man's son. So the first painting that came up for sale was the son. Can we go back? That one. And he said, right, who's going to open the bidding? Who's going to open the bidding for the son? And everybody started to grumble because they wanted all the, and the monets and the rich paintings and, 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 and the incredible works of art. And they're going, well, this, this is no good. Well, I'm, not, I'm not paying for that. And the man said, right, who, who'll open the bidding at £1,000? And there was nobody. 500, nobody. 100, nobody made a bid. And by this time, everybody was mourning. Like, when's he going to get on with the real stuff? When is he going to get on with the auction? And eventually, somebody put his hand up at the back and he said, I'll bid £10. It's all I've got. And no, there was no other bid. So the auctioneer said, right, sold to the man at the back. And the man at the back stood up and he said, I'm buying that because it means something to me. I'm given, every, I don't have much, but I've given everything I have because that man gave his life for me and I painted that painting. And the auctioneer said, right, sale's finished. Everybody go home. And they go, well, like, what, what about all the other paintings? What about, aren't we going to have the auction? And, he, and the auctioneer said, no. I'm with strict instructions under the will that whoever gets a son gets everything. Whoever takes a son gets it all. That man has everything because he took the son. And that's what Christ died for. Whoever takes a son. Who do you say I am? What will you... You see, the gospel isn't about what we do. It's about what we do with him. It's not about what we can earn. It's about will we take the son? Will we love him? Will we share our lives with him? That's the good news of Easter. Amen.